Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Wonder of wonders, words have started arriving for my 13-month-old son. Words. There's mama and apa, that's me. There's agua for water. There's doggy, of course, and berry and belly button. All the important things. I say that words have started arriving because, well, where do they come from? They're not his. He doesn't own them. He doesn't make the words, and neither do we. We just pass them on, and our parents pass them on to us. And so these harmonic configurations of moving air, for that's what a word is, right? This dynamically shaped air forms a rosary that stretches back across eons to the very first word. And what was that? Words are somatic for my baby boy. They're visceral. They're a big deal. You can watch the air around his head just before a word arrives and you can see something tingling there like golden bees in the ether. If you look carefully, you can see a rise upwards from the feet, the ripple of the muscles of the belly, a softening and opening of the bones of the skull. If you listen closely within yourself, you can feel that too. You can feel a word as it passes your heart. Try it. The bones soften, the air rises, the belly drops, the eye sockets draw back. I see words in my son's feet. I see them in his spine. Looking at him, I've learned some things about words that I had long suspected. A word is not something that is simply manufactured. It's more like an agreement. An agreement between the vessel and the water, one could say. Between us and the living air. My son's neural connections will construct themselves around rosaries of words that are not of his own making. The brain does not make the word. The brain constructs its architecture around the word. We are a network constructed around a source that is ultimately wordless, but that expresses through us in words. As poet and writer and linguist Robert Bringhurst says, quote, Linguistic rhythms are rooted in physiological rhythms, in muscle, blood, and breath, which are rooted in the air and in the ground. They answer to the rhythms of the world we inhabit. Night and day, darkness and moonlight, summer and winter, wet season and dry. And where are those rhythms rooted? a durable subject for meditation, end quote. So where are those rhythms rooted? What is the ultimate source of words? In the Vedic understanding, word is the goddess herself. 
speech, voice, vach, vakshakti, who emerges eternally from the unfathomable source as the vibratory power of creation. The source, like the yolk of a peacock's egg, contains all the colors and textures of the brilliant bird-to-be latent within it. Then that unfathomable source becomes voice. The peacock tail fans out in a scintillant display of infinite vibration. Creation. Word. Ah, my son says, and his body expels the sound. Ah. 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 The primal sound. More on that sound in another episode. All this effluent, this holy outflow, this world of light and color and sound and vibration, is, in this vision, the living word. Scholar and author Bill Mahoney says this of this divine voice, quote, The Vedic poets heard the divine as vach, voice, and identified it as the goddess, the universal voice herself, who through the power of her creative word forms the universe in her entirety. Vach was a universal poetess, a creator of worlds. Understood in this way, the cosmos was a poetic work of art, for it was itself a universal poem. He goes on, quote, The voice of the goddess was heard in the thunderous roar of the storm clouds and the songs of the wind blowing through the many regions. My home is in the heavenly waters, she says to one seer. From there, I spread out on all sides all over the universe. I breathe as the breeze and support all the worlds. Raining from the skies and blowing through the air, her voice became all creatures. The sage, Dirgatamas, likened Vach to a lowing buffalo cow, from whose thousand-syllabled voice in the sublimest heaven descends in streams the oceans of water. It is from her whence flow the immortal waters. It is from her whence the universe assumes life. It is not surprising that Vach, the universal word, who enlivens, refreshes, and inspires all things, is regarded as residing in the flowing rivers and in the rains falling from the atmosphere, which then give life to all beings. Moving through the world as the life-giving waters, the divine word dwells in and supports all things. These life-giving word waters are known sometimes as the Saraswati River, the river of universal discourse, the speech that is all speech, that Hess's Siddhartha hears as he puts one ear to the river, that Rudolfo Anaya describes when he says that, quote, the gurgling waters of the river sang to the hum of the turning earth. The magical time of childhood stood still, and the pulse of the living earth pressed its mystery into my living blood. End quote. This river surrounds us. We are immersed in it, born from it, and we ourselves add back to it as the streams of words pour from each of our throats, where the goddess Saraswati sits with her lute, invoking the clear notes of high vibration right at the throat center. Mm. 
So each of us has access to this flowing river. We've heard words that seep into our deepest tissues like steady rain permeating the dry soil. I have a teacher in India who speaks three words from the sacred texts, and it's like swimming in the river pools of trance. The life-giving waters flow as a river of eternal speech, like La 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 Listen, I come clear like koans Holy rivers of flows I flow on This force of life it goes on Eternal like it goes on Cry of the loaned woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-woe-wo
The Rig Veda, one of the oldest spiritual texts on the planet, describes how the seers, the poets, the bards, the rishis and kavis gained access to this river of words and describes the gifts that language brought. Quote, when the seers came forth to make firm the first beginnings of language, assigning names, their best and purest secret that had been hidden in mystery within them was revealed through love. When the seers fashioned language with their thoughts, filtering it like dried grain through a sieve, friends recognized their friendships. Auspicious beauty is set on their language. The divine speech reveals itself like a loving and well-adorned wife to her husband, end quote. In many visions, it was the seers and singers and poets who were responsible for language. Many linguists and neuroscientists now consider that song came before language, that human language may indeed have grown from spontaneous singing. So as Bringher said, those linguistic rhythms were rooted in the turning of the spheres above in natural cycles, and we listened. We listened. We listened and heard the divine speech, shruti, as it is said in Sanskrit, that which is heard, and we sang what we heard, and the songs gave names to things. The poet, says Ralph Waldo Emerson, is the namer or the language maker, naming things sometimes after their appearance, sometimes after their essence. The poets made all the words. Each word was at first a stroke of genius and obtained currency because for the moment it symbolized the world to the first speaker and to the hearer. The etymologist finds the deadest word to have once been a brilliant picture. Language is fossilized poetry. End quote. For those who have heard the bubbling speech of the world, their role is to return it to the world in poems of praise. As Mahoney says, quote, Those poets to whom she has revealed herself then form words of beauty by filtering her divine voice in their hearts and their minds, giving names to things by seeing the hidden essence through the revelatory power of love. End quote. And through ritual recitation, the source of words itself is enlivened, re-energized through the singing of the seers. Quote, singing the divine poetry by means of the human voice as they kindled the ceremonial fire, the priests returned the vital breath to the divine source. So the luminous source clothes itself in poetic meter, and that chanted meter re-illuminates the community and revitalizes the luminous source itself. This is the cycle of sacred speech. It grows luminous connection through its power. This rapturous purpose of speech informs traditions around the world. Hildegard of Bingen, the 13th century German mystic, spontaneously sang in a spiritual language no one had heard before. The Ifugao, a matrilineal people in the northern Philippines, conduct an annual ritual recitation of their tales and epics, each family clan singing pieces of the epic, which names hundreds of heroes and gods and nature spirits. The effect is murmurous rapture, story and song emitting from all the houses in the community to make a rumbling roar of words. 
Even the early reading of scriptures, as Tom Cheatham recounts, was an ecstatic somatic exercise. Quote, the sounding pages are echoed by the resonance of the moving lips and tongue. The sequence of letters translates directly into body movements and nerve impulses by reading the pages literally embodied. The reader understands the lines by moving to their beat, remembers them by recapturing their rhythm, and thinks of them in terms of putting them into his mouth and chewing. Speaking about the words of the Canticle of Canticles, St. Bernard says, quote, Enjoying their sweetness, I chew them over and over. My internal organs are replenished. My insides are fattened up, and all my bones break out in praise. All my bones break out in praise. Ah, my thirteen-month-old son says, and the whole world quivers like an aspen leaf. promise of discourse is that it can be a means of, as Bringer says, stepping in tune with being, echoing the music and heartbeat of being. In other words, discourse can live within the great river of flows. I am y'all with the flows, Jay-Z continues, invoking the ability of the river of words to melt the individual self in favor of the collective. This eventually leads to the state, as he says, where I am all with the flow. The flow is the universal current, and a person can, as he says, be the flow. But being the flow is dependent on being attuned to what is. It requires deep listening. As Canadian poet Don McKay says, quote, Poetry remembers that language is shaped air. It remembers ashes to ashes, dust to dust, wind to wind. It knows we don't own what we know. It knows the world is, after all, unnameable. So it listens hard before it speaks, and wraps that listening into the linguistic act. End quote. Listening is a rare commodity these days. But deep listening is the key. It allows us to find what the mystic Sufi traditions call the lost speech or the middle voice. This is the delicate balance between speaking and being spoken, letting the word and the world speak through us, rather than trying to engineer the world through words. Tom Cheatham says that in exercising the middle voice, quote, the person is neither entirely autonomous and active, nor entirely passive and acted upon. In other words, the middle voice he's speaking of is not shapeless, rootless babble, and it's also not, I'm here to tell you how it is, and there's no other way to look at it. The middle voice is how music works, he says. You know, that balance in which the player of the instrument is also themselves being played. Discourse can be like this, too, where we speak to one another as part of a continuum of relationality, tuned to something deeper, higher, perhaps, than a finite goal of being declared right. As Cheatham says, quote, 
The search for the lost speech is a quest to cooperate in being spoken rather than simply speaking. He speaks of finding the angel in any discourse. In order to locate the angel in discourse, he says, takes a particular type of attentiveness. How often do we take the time to find the angel in discourse, to practice deep listening? When did we last have a conversation that facilitated us to step in tune with being, to echo the music and heartbeat of being? When was your last internet exchange that felt like chewing on sweetness, that caused your internal organs to feel replenished or your bones to break out in praise? When was your last internet exchange that felt like a child discovering the holy somatics of sounds, or like the seers filtering the very voice of love through rapturous language? When was the last time you typed a word with the intent of, I'm going to step in tune with being, I'm going to find the relational hum between people and places, between mind and heart, between each other? I'm not saying it can't happen over the internet. I've read things on the internet that have moved me, that have opened up spaces that were previously locked up. But what I'm getting at is this. The further the word gets separated from its rapturous somatic core, isolated and treated as a symbolic end into itself rather than part of a continuum, a stream of relationality, an opportunity for alignment to a timeless river, an opportunity for relational change, then the more public discourse and even social movements themselves become self-referential abstractions that are solely based on the shifting around of written words. True transformational magic gets lost. The angel hides. Transformational magic, the opportunity for words to transform, like abracadabra, I speak, and so it comes to be. Symbolic change becomes, then, more important than the actual change that happens in tune with being. Proclamations become more important than conversations. Hate becomes increasingly possible, as there's no somatic interaction with or relational responsibility to the faceless other, who exists as an abstraction on the screen, an icon, an isolated fortress. And through the medium of fortresses, the easiest and most convenient thing to do is to lay siege. You see what I mean? Create a communication context in which everyone has their own box, and everyone throws detached symbols at each other from their own little box. And what do you think the end result will be? Warfare. Siege. Today on the podcast, we're taking a deep dive into the river of words. The holy river of flows. Words and discourse in a declarative age. This time on The Emerald.
imagine this. One of my Paleolithic ancestors observes me and whoever I happen to be arguing with on the internet that day as we're engaged in a social media debate. What does my ancestor see? They see spines, hunched unnaturally, tense shoulders, a strange fixation in the gaze, somatic signs that tell of restlessness, but a weird kind of restlessness that's almost inert, glazed roving eyes, no root in the feet, no breath in the vessel, slump, like how I would describe a decaying zombie, slumped over, but also anxious at the same time, like a zombie who found a hidden stash of monster energy drinks and was chained to a chair staring into a glowing box. Yeah, that might not be how my Paleolithic ancestor would describe it, but this is what they'd see equally on both sides. The somatics of the situation. They certainly wouldn't see that anyone in particular is right in this context, or winning anything in any tangible sense of the word, or demonstrating any power or ability that would serve any real purpose within the cycles of nature. In fact, the content of this virtual discussion would matter to this ancestor not in the slightest. And this is where the yogic teachings have a lot to offer. Do we consider that how the vital life breath is moving through us in any given moment is more important than the content of our thoughts? Like, if we're on the internet anxiously trying to convince someone about a concept, and the mind is getting all stirred up, and the torrent of vrittis is roiling, and we're fixated on the other person accepting our point of view, or adopting our exact vernacular, then we are physically embodying something that is diametrically opposed to what we say we are trying to create. We're embodying obsession, and what we'll create out of that obsession ultimately are paradigms of obsession, out of tune with being fixated on who uses words the way we want them to and who doesn't, rather than on the relational, living, breathing space between actual humans. Let's breathe on that for a moment. What's more important, the content of your thoughts or the state of the vessel that's experiencing them? Flow, says evidence of the dilated peoples, is ultimately more important than message. And when the vessel experiences a more aligned state, does it change the nature of the words that come through? How does it change interaction when these days words never have to be spoken in direct contact to the ones we're speaking? Not close enough to take all those nonverbal somatic cues. Not close enough to experience the measurable resonances that emit when hearts align. Not close enough to change an annoying disagreement to a remembrance of each other's humanity. To a conspiracy, an act of breathing together in unison. How does it change interaction to trade barrages of symbols across empty space? What goes missing? I worked for many years as an activist on behalf of the Tibetan people. One thing that I was called on to do on several occasions was to conduct media trainings for Tibetans so that they could better navigate the world of modern, technologically-driven media discourse. And I've seen similar trainings happen across the nonprofit world with indigenous Amazonian leaders. The goal is ostensibly a good one. Help make sure that the affected people are able to communicate their campaign goals effectively and efficiently. You know, 
get the message across in a way that your average attention span challenged reporter or viewer will understand. A lot of good came of these trainings, one could say, but implicit in this process was an assumption that always left me feeling a little uncomfortable. The assumption was that, if left to their own devices, of course, the people in question might, what, say things differently. They might take a long time to say what was needed to be said. Or they might say it in a way that modern media audiences would find to be non-linear or not to the point. They might speak about things that you or I might not consider relevant, about things that actualize in spirals rather than in lines. We might get uncomfortable with so much arch since we're used to so much starch, one could say. It might be too poetic. It might never get around to the soundbite. And if it's never packaged and delivered in, as they say in the marketing world, snackable bites of content, then the opportunity for the message to be widely assimilated will have been lost. So in order to conform to an assumed right form of discourse, many of the unique details that might actually be something precious and deeply human about communication, somatic flourishes and resonances, pauses, seeming irrelevancies that ultimately weave their way back into narrative and end up enriching it, stories, lived experience, breath, texture, Narratives that veer away from one agreed-upon narrative, but end up bringing to life fresh perspectives. All this gets intentionally carved away. What gets lost? What always gets lost? The poetry. The living, animate heart of it. Robert Bringhurst says, Driving what is with a stick, or leading or dragging or steering what is, is not poetry it is mechanics or engineering. And what happens when we drive what is with a stick? The river dries up, and suddenly the potential for transformational magic disappears. Too much starch in the flow. This is a sacrifice that's made in order to get stuff done in order to move forward. Yet, make that sacrifice too often, across too many generations, and pretty soon a movement may forget the heart of what was trying to be preserved in the first place. What if what was originally intended to be preserved had to do with deep relationality, and spirit, and exuberance, and heart, and all the things that modern media discourse drains out of life? And how does that survive within a context of too much media-friendly engineered speech? Don't get me wrong, the use of words and messaging to achieve specific goals within protest movements is obviously important. And so this isn't to say there isn't time and place for confrontational or direct speech. Trust me, I spent many years shouting into a megaphone at protests. I believe in protest. But if you follow this podcast, you also know that I'm interested in how all sides of the political and social spectrum, all organized movements, it seems, find ways to stifle the animate relational flow between us. In the interest of steering what is with a stick, movements, media, religions, sciences, all manage to distance humanity from its breathing core. If you want proof... Simply look at who ends up executing poets. All sides. 
Religions do it. Science effectively does it. Right-wing political movements do it. And so do left-wing political movements. Like Itzik Pfeffer, who wrote poems condemning the far right, but was eventually executed by the far left during Russia's Night of Murdered Poets. Even those movements and ideologies that are closest to our hearts have to eternally guard themselves from developing an aversion to the poetry that would challenge them to ever replenish, ever bathe in the timeless and the new. In many visions, the one particular thing that is most likely to get in the way of stepping into being, stepping into the river of flows, is being in a rush, being ahead of the flow, leading what is. Motion in cultures of the machine, says Bringhurst, tends to become an end in itself and is rarely to the tune of being. In these conditions, poetry hides. When anthropologist Keith Basso went to document traditional Apache forms of place naming and contextual linguistics, he worked with an Apache guy named Charles Henry. The first day out in the field, Keith is trying to learn the Apache place names and he's getting frustrated. And Charles senses his frustration and says to their colleague, quote, He seems to be in a hurry. Why is he in a hurry? It's disrespectful. Our ancestors made this name. They made it, just as it is. They made it for a reason. They spoke it first, a long time ago. End quote. They made it, just as it is. They made it, for a reason. Sometimes in our rush to drive what is, we disrespect the deep contextual flow of things. Another way to say this is, to know the true names of things takes time. It takes time. A willingness to listen. A willingness to sit in the space between. In the Pythagorean spiritual school, for example, disciples had to refrain from asking questions for three full years. Imagine that. Three full years of listening. Probably many more years before you voiced an opinion on anything at all. And how much would your opinion have changed after all that time? After all those years in which words would transform from things that simply dart about in the air around our heads, and instead seep through all the layers of tissues and into the very bones.
in The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien introduces the culture of the Ents, tree shepherds with a slow, rolling language that is intimately connected to place. Is how the ants say hill, for example. Or is it that particular hill, that one place that exists in that framework of relationships, that song place? You must understand, young hobbit, says Treebeard. It takes a long time to say anything in old Entish, and we never say anything unless it's worth taking a long time to say. He bemoans how the names are getting shorter and shorter these days. Land of the Valley of Singing Gold, Lorlindoranan, has now been shortened to Lorien, Dreamflower. As usual, Tolkien is getting at something deeply embedded in the animist view of the cosmos, that place and song and story and words are profoundly interconnected and that isolating any aspect of that context changes things dramatically. So back to Keith Basso, our researcher in a rush, he found that in the Apache worldview, words and places form a contextual whole. A naming word was inseparable from place and socio-spiritual context. He quotes Benson Lewis speaking of a particular mountain. Quote, I think of that mountain called... White rocks lie above in a compact cluster, as if it were my maternal grandmother. I recall stories about how it once was at that mountain. The stories told to me were like arrows. Elsewhere, hearing that mountain's name, I see it. Its name is like a picture. Stories go to work on you like arrows. Stories make you live right. Stories make you replace yourself. transformational power of a word or story in this case goes to work on a person, helps them replace themselves, replenish, renew, because it all happens in a seamless context. As Basso says, quote, whenever Apaches describe the land, or as happens more frequently whenever they tell stories about incidents that have occurred at specific points, they take steps to constitute it in relation to themselves. On such occasions, a single place name may accomplish the communicative work of an entire saga or historical tale. Travel in your mind to a point from which to view the place's name that has just been spoken. Travel in your mind. Imagine standing there. Imagine standing there as if in the tracks of your ancestors and recall stories of events that occurred in that place long ago. Those place names are strong, one interviewee proclaims. Those place names are strong. Which is another way of saying what Tom Waits said about songs. Martin Shaw mentioned this in a recent interview with Emergence magazine. Tom Waits said, Every song needs an address. It needs a town and some street names and a couple of sailors staggering through those streets. It needs to be anatomically correct. Words need to live in context in order to live up to the potential of their transformative power. (laughs) 
So we have a vision of words and story and conversation being anchored in deep context, and that deep context facilitates transformation. In this context, a conversation is more than declarative banter, a type of speech that Tyson Yonkaporta says stunts the mind. Conversation might serve the purpose of building relationality, increasing connectivity. It might be evocative. It might be invocative. It might create a portal, for example, through which access is gained to deeper perspectives. It might dance around silence in a way that stirs the air and moves a heart. It might be for a palpable force of kindness to come filtering through, or to reinforce bonds with land, or to make old forgotten songs hum or to plant seeds in the consciousness that sprout within context over long, long periods of time. It might be to open the way for one of the very primal purposes of words, what's called transmission, in which the word is not an abstract placeholder for some idea or concept, but a living force. Her, the goddess of voice, and that voice transforms through transmission, transmission. Now suppose you extracted words entirely from the somatic vessel that houses them. Take all the breath out of a word and the blood and the music, and the tonality, and capture it on a flat surface. And suppose you took the community context out of a word, and the natural environment that birthed that word, and the power that vocalization brings. And over time, words became so easily replicable, and so readily available, that they lost all connection to what they invoke. What, then, is the value of a word? What is the value of an opinion? What is the value of an opinion on the internet, really? What is the value of an opinion on the internet, if that opinion has no context? Why does an opinion really matter at all? Well, you could say there are a lot of people these days who've monetized their opinions on the internet. (laughs) But what is the value in terms of real transformative magic. About a month ago, Liz Franzik of the True Anon podcast, and for those who are just catching up, that's True Anon, not QAnon. Don't worry, I'm not spending my time listening to far-right conspiracy theories about Tom Hanks drinking adrenochrome. Yeah, so... Liz Franzik of the True Anon podcast recently said something very interesting about the state of the world. She encouraged listeners to explore the dynamic between the fact that things in our world are so nuts right now. So nuts, right? Pandemics and massive global movements and corruption and call-outs and Tucker Carlson calls Tammy Duckworth a moron and she says he doesn't know what patriotism means. Compare this nuttiness with the fact that nothing really seems to fundamentally change. The basic underpinnings and trajectories of society and the progress narrative that drives it seem basically to stay the same. The two things are related, she says. 
So let's go back to rivers for a minute. If you've ever gone river rafting and rafted technical rapids on a river, you might be familiar with the term recirculating hole. If you're a rafting guide, you know you have to watch out for those recirculating holes. It's a whirlpool of sorts, a configuration of water in which water flows over an obstacle and creates a gap that needs to be refilled. The river refills this gap by flowing back upstream, creating this continual recirculating flow of water. And they're intense. Things get stuck in there and they can't really get out. I once saw a raccoon carcass in a class 5 recirculating hole in Westwater Canyon that the river guide said had been spinning around in there for the entire season, three months at least. The recirculating hole, with all its froth and frenzy and churning and rehashing, creates the illusion of movement. There's a whole lot going on in that hole, isn't there? Things are frothing and moving about, but is anything actually changing? So yeah, you get where I'm going. Mediated discourse is something of a recirculating hole. It's a self-referential vortex of primarily written words, tweets, posts, etc., The recirculating hole has appeal to it. It's kinetic. There's movement. There's dynamism. And in fact, people are being paid a whole lot to keep the hole recirculating. Let's use words to make proclamations about small government and the horrors of political correctness. And all this dynamism, all this conversation, something must be happening, right? So we hear the ubiquitous internet proclamation, okay, people, we really need to have a conversation about what so-and-so tweeted. Or, it's time for a national conversation on X. And that's meant to imply that if only we share enough words, enough concepts, if only we dive into the recirculating hole together, things are going to change. But things mostly stay the same. Why? Because it's not an actual conversation in context. There's no deep intent of transformational magic, because the deep intent of transformational magic requires time. It requires patience. It requires what Martin Shaw calls fidelity. It requires a commitment, as Cheatham says, to the angel in any conversation. It requires deep listening to the currents and changes of the river from a point of center and equilibrium, rather than simply acting as a bit of froth that goes round and round the recirculating hole. The words being thrown about in what now passes for conversation, exist in a detached energetic configuration removed from the context in which their entire purpose is to simply recirculate and recirculate. And in the absence of relational context, the only thing that is left for a word to do is to declare itself as an end unto itself. And so movements are increasingly defined by words, words as ends unto themselves. Once you accept the recirculating whole as the medium through which change is supposed to happen, then you might have entire movements born from argumentative academic essays that exist in an ecosystem of constantly recirculating and increasingly self-referential vernacular. 
you might see movements placing far too much power on how written words are being used, where they're being used, and not on the actual magic of words in living conversation. You might see words being created and destroyed as if they were nothing. Words that have very long histories tossed out, as Robert McFarlane documented in his beautiful book, The Lost Words, which chronicles words that the Oxford Junior Dictionary feels are no longer relevant to young people, Words like acorn, for example. Who wants to live in a world in which acorns are irrelevant? And you might have immediate and almost obsessive importance attached to words that were just invented a few years ago. A hundred thousand years of linguistic history and context, and all of a sudden, if you don't use vernacular that was literally made up five years ago, you're committing a grave offense. Do a couple of studies and change the meaning of a word that has held a certain set of deep relational contexts for a hundred millennia, and everybody accept it. That's change. Or is it? Myself, I wouldn't invent a word without sounding it out first in the canyons. See what it invokes. See how it configures the air. See if any hummingbirds come along to investigate its resonances. How can the kestrels fly along its wake if it doesn't vibrate in tune with what is? In Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Wall Kimmerer says, Language is a mirror for seeing the animacy of the world, the life that pulses through all things, through pines and nuthatches and mushrooms. This is the language I hear in the words. This is the language that lets us speak of what wells up all around us. But again, stepping into being takes time. Transformational magic that actually creates change is extremely difficult. Think of a friend that you really love, but there's this pattern between you that you'd really like to see changed. It's only a little thing, but, you know, it's actually not that little. It's something you'd really like to change. Okay, why not just change it? Change the pattern. How difficult could it be, change another human being? Have you ever tried? It's one of the hardest things in the universe to do. I'm no expert on what actually brings change, but it may require the type of contextual conversation which demands all the things that we have seemingly ceased to value. Depth. Intimacy. Reconciliation. Perspective. Space, mutual building, love. When I'm part of a group of four people cooperating to build a fire the old way, I'm part of a relational system that has patience, persistence, discipline, adaptability, forgiveness, and love built right into it. We may need to take the battle out of the realm of words and into the realm of systemic structures of cooperation. Systems in which we actually have to work together with people we might disagree with, rather than take pot shots at them from a distance. We might have to refine states of being and building together, as opposed to engaging in a war over digital symbols that live rootless and free of context. 
You may have heard the story of Derek Black. It's been told a lot, but it's told a lot for a good reason. Derek Black was a white supremacist. He was heir to a family line of white supremacists, in fact. He was well on his way to becoming a leader in the alt-right white nationalist movement. And then he went to college. And what happened next shows the power of the transformational magic of conversation in context. His fellow students discovered he was a white nationalist leader. Some shamed him, some outed him on community message boards and threads, some unleashed a barrage of labels at him. But some others took a different approach. They didn't dismiss him or paint him with a broad brush. They didn't name him, brand him white nationalist a moniker that would have allowed them to then disregard all the nuance and texture of his humanity. Because remember, names are longer than we think. What we know of a person is just one small aspect of their name. The true names of things are longer than we think. And to know them, to really know them, takes time. So what did they do? They invited him to dinner. And they talked. And they listened. And they didn't go into that dinner trying to steer what is. They didn't hope to come out of that dinner having converted Derek Black to their worldview. They had dinner. And then they had dinner again. And again. And over the course of two years, Derek Black changed. He gave up the ideology of white nationalism and has gone on to speak publicly about race relations and healing the divide between black and white in America. When asked about the process of changing people's views, Black said this, quote, I think it's never going to be as easy as trying to argue somebody into a new worldview. Hear that, Internet? I think it's never going to be as easy as trying to argue somebody into a new worldview. I can hear some of my old friends out there chuckling because I was known for a long time as someone who would try to argue people into a new worldview. <laughs> what I've seen in my own life over time is that a lot of that was not really wanting to take time, not wanting to take time to listen because I was in a rush, not wanting to take time to understand, to feel, to get to know, to allow, to step into being. It's hard to hate someone if you're all seated at the same dinner table. I mean, with the exception of some family Thanksgivings, but I continue to feel that breaking bread together is high magic, and that constructing tables and forums at which people with opposing views can break bread together is one of the worthiest things to be done in an argumentative age. Sit at a table together, and the words become less important than the invisible connections between the words and the heart becomes important, and the shine in the eye, and the commonalities we share, and the opportunities we create for the river of flows to flow through us, as it is, without steering or engineering it. So what ultimately am I suggesting with all these words, 8,000 words about words? I'm suggesting more opportunities for people to sit at common tables and explore a common context. I'm suggesting seeking to understand what forums are conducive to transformative word magic and what aren't. 
I suggest kindling fires of communal warmth with our words, weaving blankets within which we all can huddle with our words, shaking sleeping statues awake with our words. Like Martin Shaw says, the business of stories is waking up. But the business of stories also, as he says, has always been about building relationships, constructing communal space with our words. I suggest a keen eye that recognizes the signs when movements begin to turn sour towards poetry. I suggest always more poetry in modern discourse. I suggest movements that are a return to the depths of somatic discourse, in which there is no effort to encapsulate deeply textural situations in sound bites, to step into conversations without already knowing the answers. And trust me, I'm suggesting this for myself as much as anyone else. I'm suggesting that verbal protest is necessary, proclamations are necessary, but declaration cannot be the entire context in which societal conversation happens, or a society will ultimately have no place to go but war. I'm suggesting that the true transformative magic happens when we speak within contexts that hold space for the river of flows. So maybe we can remember what it means, as the Vedas say, to have light in our mouths, to chew on sweetness, to remember the love and rapture at the heart of language, a love which is ultimately shruti, heard, by those who are more concerned with placing their hand to their ear to hear the divine sound than in dominating discourse. And with my son, I'll try my best to honor the feet and spine of his words the holy shine of his words, the nouns and verbs of his words, the deep aquifers of his words. And I'll teach him what my teachers have taught me. The only words that truly matter are words that come from practice, not just words from the head or even words from the heart, words from the root, words that have been embodied. Words born from practice can do more than opine or suggest. They invoke. They transmit. They take us somewhere, unlock doors of the heart space, so we can feel what a treasure it is, and a responsibility, and a right, and a power it is to speak with words. I'll close with a prayer that was recorded in 1929 by a Diné storyteller named Charlie Mitchell, who also helped transcribe it specifically so it would be gotten right, and that others would benefit from reading it aloud. He wanted it to be spoken aloud, and that's important. He says, I say that I have spoken of continuous fruition, the thinking of the gods. I say that I have spoken of how beauty comes to be, the speaking of the gods. I say that I have spoken of the pollen boy. I say that I have spoken of the corn beetle girl. Being where we are, that clearness may surround us, we have told our stories to each other. That our words be straight and clear, we have told our stories to each other. That we move without disfiguring the air, we have told our stories to each other. That we and how we walk may be the thinking of the gods, we have told our stories to each other. May it be good. May it be beautiful. May it be handsome. May it be clear.
This episode contains references to many books, articles, songs, etc. These are Rhymes in the Flow by Macklin Smith and Arko Joshi. It's a book that's just come out from Michigan University Press. Everywhere Being is Dancing by Robert Bringhurst. Wisdom Sits in Places by Keith Basso. Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram. Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Vach, the concept of the word in select Hindu tantras by Andre Padu. The Artful Universe, Bill Mahoney. And from that, I draw particularly on Rigveda verse 1071. And Bill Mahoney's book, The Artful Universe, I highly recommend. Imaginal Love, Tom Cheatham. Sand Talk by Tyson Yonkaporta. The Lost Words by Robert McFarlane. Ralph Waldo Emerson as quoted through Susan Bryn Morrow's The Names of Things. Bless Me Ultima by Rudolfo Anaya, Rest in Peace. Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Courting the Wild Twin by Martin Shaw. And he also did a great interview recently on the Emergence Magazine podcast, which I highly recommend. Liquid Swords, the 1995 song by Jizza, a.k.a. Genius. Truanon podcast with Brace Belden and Liz Franzik. And of course, Flow by Jay-Z. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. Thank you.